0: Well, hello and welcome. Uh, Today is number 26 in our What the World's Coming To podcast series. And that means that if you are just joining us now for the first time, that there are another 25 episodes that you can find on my website, KenOrtiz.com, dealing with a wide Variety of topics, uh, especially in terms of the end times and uh, what we can expect. The idea is that the Bible speaks of the future, and as we look at the information that comes to us through media and other sources today, we can become informed. At least, uh, as Jesus said, we would be able to lift, look up, and lift up our eyes and look up and recognize that our redemption is drawing near. So that everything that I say is predicated on the assumption that we are living in, what the Bible calls the end times. Yet today, you may wonder how this applies to that, and I think it is far more significant than most people realize. I really want to address the question, why evolution matters. And evolution has been around for so long as an ideology, and even in some ways a religious uh, philosophy, that it really goes, like most things that are around for a long time, unquestioned. Uh, It reminds reminds me of the people who came to a new church and they went to sit down in one of the pews and somebody said, oh, you can't sit there. And so they got up and moved. And then they, through the service, they realized that no one else had come and sit there, sat in that seat. So at the end of the service, they went up and asked the pastor, why were we not allowed to sit there? And he said, I have no idea. So eventually they found the oldest member of the congregation and said, why are people forbidden to sit in this particular pew? And he started chuckling. He says, well, years ago, uh, we didn't have enough money to fix a leak in the roof. And so the water would drip there and pool. And so people would sit there and get wet. So we told people, you can't sit there. And even though the roof's been fixed many years later, we're still under the habit of telling people not to sit there. Uh, Whether that's a true story or not is highly questionable, but the point it does illustrate how um, we can begin to buy into something as being a truth or reality just because it's a thing that we've been exposed to. I'm reminded of a uh, plane trip I was on one time where I sat next to a young man, he was a freshman in college, and uh, he saw me reading my Bible as we were in an evening flight. And he looked at me and he says, is that the Bible? And I said, yes. And he says, why are you reading it? And I said, because I'm a Christian. And he said, Well, I couldn't become a Christian. And I asked him, Why not? He said, Because I believe in evolution. Well, at least I appreciate the fact that he was intelligent enough to realize that the two things were incompatible. But I said to him in response, When he said, I believe in evolution, I said, Of course you do. And he was a little taken back and he says, Why do you say that? I said, Have you ever been presented with any other option for the existence of the universe or man or anything else? And he sat there for a moment and said, Well, no. And so I said, well, there actually are a lot of people, even non-religious people, who find real problems with evolution. And I wrote down the name of a couple of books and authors that were written by non-Christian scientists who bring out just the basic problems that are faced in trying to cling to a theory of existence that doesn't really match what we know to be true in our scientific and material evaluations. So anyway, I want to begin to talk about this because I think we need to understand that our way of looking at life, even looking at the Bible in particular, is profoundly shaped and affected by the whole idea of whether or not evolution is true or not. Now, let me shift gears a little bit here and talk about something that, you know, most of us, um, we aren't very comfortable with, and that's the idea of change. Now, most people say, you know, I'm okay with change or I don't mind change, but what they're really saying is, I don't mind changes that are improvements in what I already accept or know, but I don't want radical changes that requires me to make uncomfortable and dramatic shifts or adjustments to my life. And yet change is one of the unavoidable Realities of the universe we're in. Now, there's two different views of uh, our views why change take place. There's the evolutionary view that in every way, every day we're getting better and better. It's the idea that mankind is progressing along with the rest of the created universe. Now, there's all sorts of uh, contradictions in that. You have people who are the conservationists who basically say we need to preserve the spotted owl and other endangered species, and yet if they were true evolutionists, they would say, well that's just the way it goes. It's survival of the fittest. We're finding that some species are being eliminated in order for others to dominate. So you find that many times people have contradictions within their own belief systems. And I think one of the amazing things about human beings is that we are able to hold two completely contradictory ideas at the same time and not even recognize the problem. And I think that's often true with people who believe in evolution, and even more so in people who say that I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I believe the Bible is going. God's Word, and they believe in evolution. These things are diametric, and they're opposed, and there's no way of really making them uh, sympathetic. They are really uh, in conflict with each other. Now, change, and even cultural change, is an inevitability. That's why we have history recording changes in culture. And the reasons are kind of obvious. There's three major ones. One of them is called catastrophe. When you have plagues, when you have earthquakes, you have floods, basically that whole category of natural disasters, we know that these things so turn a, a culture upside down that a culture really has to find a whole new basis of functioning. Take, for example, the the Black Plague during the Middle Ages, I mean, someplace between a third and a half of the population of, of Europe was wiped out by the plague, and the country went into an economic and intellectual a uh, dark zone for a long time. That's why they call it the Dark Ages, where really uh, a lot of things had to be relearned and rediscovered. There was the uh, the uh, little ice age that came even before that, which caused uh, basically a whole change in the culture of Europe, because suddenly Europe got colder, and they went from warm water warm Weather crops. I mean, they grew wheat and they grew, um, and they had vineyards and they drank wine. And suddenly, all of that was wiped out by colder weathers and they went to cold weather crops. So they went to drinking beer, uh, which was made from hops, which could survive the cold weather. Uh, things like coleslaw and cabbages and we call cold weather vegetables became more common and part of the daily diet, especially in the northern parts of Europe. So basically, these changes in climate, uh, plague, earthquakes, and so forth can really bring about tremendous tremendous. tremendous changes in culture, usually what they do is culture reaches a point of advancement and suddenly because of these things, the culture is brought way back and many basic things have to be relearned. A second dynamic that brings culture change is conquest. I mean, wars basically change everything. Uh, when the Romans conquered the Greeks, the Romans absorbed a lot of the Greek culture, but the Greek culture also became much more Roman in its personality. It became more homogenous because the Romans brought people together by force. But nonetheless, it did create a, a more of a stability in cultures from nation to nation. So you could have a road system that spanned the entire empire because Rome built a road system that expanded, that that connected all of these countries which previously had had barriers amongst uh, cross-border travel. So these kind of things bring real changes and suddenly it brings exposure to a whole different philosophy and ways of thinking and so forth. It's not surprising or maybe even uh, unforeseen that Christianity would rise in the moment when suddenly the world was connected by a road system and by a shipping system that enabled the gospel to travel to all the ends of the known world at that time. There is one third dynamic that gets goes underestimated, and that's the issue of prosperity. Uh, prosperity uh, is one of those things that we all yearn for, but at some point it has a top end where it begins to become more regressive than progressive. In other words, it leads to a greater sense of leisure. Um, there's a greater growth in silliness. I mean, if you can afford to speculate on stupid things, then you find that more and more of your study, research, and energy is going to be poured into silly things. I take, for example, the whole idea of gender identity. Gender identity didn't exist in the 1920s during the Great Depression or even World War I or the Civil War because it could not have survived in those cultures. It's so ostensibly stupid and unrealistic that there wasn't the prosperity available to sustain the silly. And so what we have is these social changes that come into play that are really sustained only because of our prosperity. If America should lose its prosperous position, these things as social influences and factors would go away very, very quickly as people became more concerned with surviving and uh, filling their bellies with food and protecting themselves from danger than they would um, which, which gender they're going to declare themselves to be this week or this day. But all of these things, as I said, have a change in a culture. And what they lead to is what we call ideological changes. And what I mean by ideological changes or ideology is basically take the simple word idea and put it to uh, thinking. And you end up finding that people change the way in which they think about things, what they believe to be true, what they believe is right, what they believe is wrong, what they believe is good, and what they believe is evil. These things change from culture to culture when they're not anchored in the firm foundations of biblical uh, teaching. So that one of the things we find that those value systems, those ideologies, those worldviews will change from religion to religion, from culture to culture, even from person to person. Uh, you have unity in a culture when people hold to the same view. They have the same, as we've talked about before, the same zeitgeist, They're the spirit of the age. Uh, Hitler was able to lead his nation because he was able to convince a large part of Europe, not just Germany, that fascism was the way forward. The same happened with Marxism. Uh, even the progressives and the conservatives today in their battle for the minds of uh, America and Western Europe and many other places, all these things are based based upon an idea of what's good, real, and true, and most valuable. So that basically fascism could promote the idea that there was this superior race of people uh, called Aryans that should be ruling over everything, and other races had to be extinguished, and so forth. The idea of a strong leader, they didn't believe in democracy, they didn't believe in, in, in shared power. All of these things, you know, basically come from someplace, something people believe to be true. And so people like Hitler or Stalin or Lenin or these other strong leaders, or even Mao, have the ability to control large swaths of humanity because they begin by convincing enough of that humanity to die in order to fulfill their vision for the future. And of course, these people, like Hitler, was a true believer. I mean, he believed everything he said with all of his heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and it led to death and destruction. So, it all really comes down to is a differing definition of what is real. And that's really interesting because you can have a definition of what's real, and if it's wrong, you'll find out because reality will come crashing into your fantasy, and that's really, in the long term, what affects one another, one from another. You see, if something is real, it's true, and if it's true, it's real. And so, if you believe something to be true that is actually true, then it benefits you. It actually works within the system. It's kind of like the difference between uh, taking your car, say, to the gas station, and you can put uh, regular gasoline in your car or you can put diesel fuel in your car and I can guarantee you this if your car is powered by diesel and you put gasoline in it your car is not going to go very far and vice versa and that's a lot of what happens to people. They have this belief in something that's true, but because it's not, they're going to find that maybe they can propel themselves through life for a distance, but sooner or later the whole thing will ultimately fall apart. As we saw with Nazism in Germany, it wasn't just simply that uh, the the um, the nations were rallied against them. That certainly was a factor, but essentially Nazism was. It was impossible to keep this system going. It was it was inherent in its own weakness. And the same thing proved to be true with communism or Soviet communism, and even with Maoist communism, that they had to shift away from the Maoist ideals because it just didn't simply work. Well How does all of this uh, get affected by men's view of the Bible? Well, we've seen that the ideas about the Bible have shifted pretty dramatically over the last few hundred years. I mean, there went from a literalism to a liberalism and now to an increasing level of skepticism about the Bible. What do I mean by biblical literalism? Biblical literalism means that except in the places where the text is obviously allegorical or poetic or figurative, it should be taken literally. So, in other words, when the psalmist says that, uh, or excuse me, Isaiah says that we would be lifted up on eagles' wings, he obviously is being allegorical, he's being poetic, he's being figurative, he's not intending us to wait around for some eagle to grab us and, and lift us up. When it tells us in the Psalms that we can hide under the shadow of God's wings, it isn't saying that God has wings, it's using the figure of a bird protecting its young by covering it with his wings as an illustration of how God watches over and protects and cares for us. So it's this idea that we uh, take the Bible literally as much as literalness makes sense. Uh, There used to be an old saying that my pastor shared often. He says, if the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense, lest you end up with nonsense. And so, you know, the Bible's a sensible book written for people who are sensible to understand. We also, when we say literalism, we mean that the Bible is inerrant. And what we mean by inerrant or without error in terms of the original autographs. <clears throat> now, one of the things we know is the Bible has been translated in copies. There, there have been errors that have entered into the text. Now, the the amazing thing about the day and age in which we live, we have tens of thousands of manuscripts that date back. Some of them as early within the first few decades after they were written. And we can compare those texts and see how much error or miscopying or what we call glosses and other things like that have entered into the text. And that's really the amazing thing about the Bible today. Right now, our Bible, you could take every controversial and argued passage of Scripture, you know, does it say this or does it say that, and put it on one half of one page of the Bible. It's basically about 50 different passages, which in terms of ancient literature is Less than zero. It's like, in other words, when we open our Bibles today and we read them, even in our English translations and in many variations of translations, not all of them, but most of them, we'll find that what we're reading is as close to the meaning of the original writings as they were when they were first penned. And so that's why when Peter says, you know, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. And then he goes on to say, "'No prophecy of the scriptures "'of any private interpretation. "'For the prophecy came not by the will of man, "'but holy men of God spake "'as they were moved by the Holy Ghost.'" Again, Timothy says, in his, Paul says in his second letter to Timothy in the third chapter that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So essentially these verses, and there are a number of other passages that tell us that the Bible is basically the word of God and that we should understand it in a literal sense as much as the literal makes complete sense. And then secondly, we can be confident that because of the science of textual criticism, these are guys who spend all of their life studying all the various manuscripts that are there and in all the various languages and comparing them and making sure that they're accurate, that basically when we read our Bible today, we're reading what was written. Now, I have some people saying, well, I don't believe what the Bible says. Well, I said, that's your choice. You can reject the message of Bible, but what isn't intellectually honest or fair or correct is to say that the message has changed. It has not, and that's really a critical distinction because when I talk to somebody and they say, well, I don't accept the message of the Bible, I said, that's your freedom. I mean, we have free will. That's God has given us that ability to say no to him, which is pretty amazing all in itself. But nonetheless, don't say he didn't say it. He did say it. It is written. It is what we believe it is. This is where we get into, I think, from literalism moves into liberalism. This really began to take place towards the end of the 19th century and began to grow significantly into the early 20th century. And basically the idea that uh, not all the Bible is true or reliable. Now, ironically, the, the reason why this got a lot of footage is because there was not the uh, uh, development of the science of textual criticism at that point. I mean, we didn't have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that proves to us that the Old Testament that we're reading is the same one that David read and that uh, Jesus read. So we didn't have those things. So they, you know, you can cut them a little slack, but basically because there was uh, not proof, therefore the lack of proof to them was the proof that there is no proof. And that's always a mistake. Just because I can't prove something doesn't mean that I'm thinking you're seeing isn't true, so but liberalism took that position. We can't really uh, say for sure, and therefore we'll say it's not true. That's always a mistake. Um, Those of us who have read the Bible over and over for decades had come to this conclusion all on ourself that there's no other book like the Bible on the planet, and all you got to do is read it and begin to have it speak into your life the way it so powerfully does when you're filled with the Holy Ghost. And uh, there's no question in your mind that God wrote this, and God has committed it to us, and he has preserved it for our consumption to this very day. But we find that the liberalism, where they went from saying, well, we're not really sure has produced in our own age a kind of skepticism, that basically the view from most people in America today is that the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. There is a tremendous erosion of faith in the Bible right now in America and around the world, but a recent Gallup study of Americans found that only 20% of Americans, which is, by the way, a historic low, according to the Gallup survey, that only 20% of them believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And even amongst those who identify as evangelical or born-again Uh, view the Bible, uh, only 40% of those identify as evangelicals and would say that the Bible is the actual word of God, and that it should be taken literally. So that's a very small percentage of a small percentage. So you have 20%, and then you cut that 20% in half, and then somewhat more, and you're really looking at less than 10% of people who would consider themselves to be evangelical and born-again Christians believe that the Bible should be taken literally uh 51% of those that small group see the bible as the inspired word of god they, and what that really means is that uh, half of the Christians, or those who profess to be born-again Christians, believe that the people who wrote them were inspired, but they weren't necessarily given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, basically, they were good writers, and they came up with some good ideas, and we should listen to them, but we shouldn't really take them seriously. That's why I I don't want to confuse you with the statistics, but basically just 6% or about 15 million of uh, Christians in America today, people who claim to be Christians, only about 15 million of us actually hold what's a worldview that's biblical because we believe that the Bible is a little word of God. So it's kind of frightening to realize it. And you're living in a country of 330 plus million people and only 15 million of those 330 million actually take the Bible uh, drop dead seriously. The rest, you know, they kind of decide how they feel about the passage and move on, which explains a lot about where we're at in our day and age. Now, You might ask the question, how in the world did all of this happen? And as I mentioned before, cultural change, and one of the cultural changes was the prosperity that Europe began to experience in the 17th and 18th century led to a lot of free time to give themselves to speculation. And there rose this whole class of of philosophers who um, basically created what we refer to now as the Enlightenment. Now, I'm not sure how much light was cast upon anything. I I would say there was a lot of uh, heat from verbiage and conversation and discussion. But it was a unique time. The prosperity had also given Lane to education and to the idea of uh, more personal freedom. And so these people were free to speculate and to come up with every idea. And one of the things you find in academia even today, and maybe even especially today, uh, a good idea is anything that's new. They're like the Athenians that Paul ran into in Acts chapter seven, where he said they were always looking for some new thing to discuss. And that's really what happened during the enlightenment. People just had the freedom to have open discussions. And that's really what academia is today. In fact, if you want to get recognized and get some notoriety, maybe you can even get on on, uh, TV on the Today Show, or you can get on um, even be called into a Senate hearing. All you have to do is have some new idea. Right now, what's in style is called wokeism, but this is all about really getting notoriety, fame, and with it, uh, oftentimes book deals and promotions and and you know different things that you get as in in the academic world. Basically, it's a way of becoming successful and popular. And so, what happened during the Enlightenment, which was about from the seventeenth to the eighteenth century, they referred to it as the Age of Reasoning, and it became really kind of the beginning of what is referred to as the Scientific Age, but it's interesting because Uh, scientific is a term that should be applied rather loosely. There certainly were the beginnings of some great scientific discoveries, but there were also a lot of conclusions made by science that proved later on to be completely fallacious. But what it was is the real shift in ideology that uh, instead of faith, people began to talk about rationalism. In other words, if you couldn't give me evidence, material evidence of something, then I said I would not believe in it because to believe in something without material evidence is faith, and we know that faith is, uh, you know, starts with the same letter as fable and falsehood, and so therefore we reject faith as a basis for knowing anything. Well. On face, that's patently absurd that all of life involves a degree of faith. Even if I'm sitting and listening to somebody who's telling me all of this, if I believe what they're saying is true, that's an act of faith on my part. And whoever they, they heard it from and told them, they accepted it faith because that person may have had a doctor in front of their name, kind of like Dr. Jill Biden, who was <laughs> should have been called an honorary doctorate. If you've read her doctoral thesis, you're, you'd be shocked. I, I would have flunked out of of uh, high school if i turned a term paper that poorly written and well it's just really if you go online see if you can re- find it and you'd be embarrassed uh it <laughs> It's. It, I would be so embarrassed if I was her. But then again, these people seem to have no shame. Anyway, but the, that was the idea that we're going to just rely upon the proof, the evidence. We're not going to accept anything by faith, um, and that's where we find that science began to replace theology. And we even hear that during the last uh, Fodemic, where we were told we're following the science, when in fact there was no science at all involved in most of the mandates, and the maskings, and even the vaccine itself. It was largely unproven and its side effects are even now beginning to be manifested uh, in a lot of serious health consequences. But again, it's the idea that believing in God is irrational and therefore we want to believe in science which only looks at the facts as a matter of fact which is not really true. In fact, it's it's well known at this point that at least half of the research studies that are done uh, are faked because that's the only way you can continue to get funding. And so they prove results that they didn't have. That's why Pfizer is fighting so hard to keep from releasing a lot of their their studies that they did before releasing the vaccine because they were not favorable. And under normal conditions, this would never have been allowed to be brought into the public. Generally, it takes... 7 to 10 years before a vaccine is is proved safe and effective uh, this the covid-19 re- was released within within 7 to 10 months uh far short of any ability to know what the long term effects were but then again they stampeded the herd and they began to run crazily in every direction but at the the real essence of all this comes back to the fact that, as Protagoras, the the uh, uh, 5th century Greek philosopher, said, man is the measure of all things. In other words, that I am the one who decides what's right and wrong, what's true and false, so that my perspectives, my intuition, my intellect, my even my emotions or my passions. Those are the things that I use to measure whether a thing is true or not. It also began to replace uh, fatalism with kind of an optimism. Fatalism is the hopelessness that comes to people who live in a world that's crashing all around them and they just get to a point where I can't change it, so I'm just going to try to struggle along until I expire. Optimism was the idea that we can begin to control the world around us. And to some degree, we can. I mean, I think about air conditioning right now, and I think, thank God for air conditioning. And yet we find that that optimism is sometimes replaced with a fatalism that we see growing on the horizon, the idea that the earth is coming to an end, that we're killing ourselves, there's climate change, and we're all going to die and all of these kind of uh, hysterical uh, panic which has no basis really in any kind of factualism at all and yet they claim they're doing it because it's scientific and it's rational Uh, again one of those confusing dynamics of human nature but also during the time of the uh, uh, enlightenment there was a replacement of uh, authoritarianism with the idea of freedom that the idea that a priest said this is the way it is and that settles it or a king said that or a ruler or anybody said that that began to be something that could be questioned. And this is you know, basically, it was a pretty healthy dynamic, because a lot of times, a lot of rules and regulations were designed to ensure that the people in power stayed in power. Kind of like what we're going back to now. Uh, freedom was the ability to say, "Listen, um, that's not true. I question that." But it also led to kind of a moral libertarianism. When somebody said, "Thou shalt not commit adultery," somebody would say, "Why not? I want to," and they did. Well, those kind of things, like adultery, take a couple of three or four decades to really reveal why there's such a bad idea. But that's a problem is by the time you finally get all the evidence in, it's too late. And that's why it's sometimes it's just good to rely upon history. Uh, but anyway, the question really comes up, who says it is wrong? So what it led to, what the Enlightenment led to is something we see very present in our world today. It led to a belief that all religious faiths are basically equal, that people are basically good, and that people can use acts of goodness to earn their way to heaven or legacy, I say heaven or legacy because some people want to believe in an afterlife and some people believe that their afterlife is living on in the memory of other people. To me, is a pretty unfulfilling afterlife. If I live on in the memory of other people and I'm not here to enjoy it, then what's the point uh, I, well anyway it's basically it leads to this idea that ultimately there are no moral absolutes and my feelings my experiences the the input I get from friends and family uh, are as trusted sources for moral guidance in my life and as long as I do things that will keep me uh, a, a respected member of the community I'll do whatever that community does and ironically in some communities it even leads to the idea of cannibalism and so forth I mean the idea of Sodom and Gomorrah the Men would go out at night and rape any helpless victim they could find. And that was acceptable. You know, if you want to be one of the guys, this is what you do. And so basically, what they're saying is having faith matters more than having any particular faith. Uh, that you follow. you know. It doesn't matter as long as you have faith. And you hear people say things like that. Well, as long as you have faith. Well, you know, basically a whole bunch of, there were 60 million people who had faith that Adolf Hitler was telling them the truth. So what we have to understand is that it doesn't matter what we put our faith in and uh, because it will affect how we live our lives. Now, if you couple the enlightenment with the pseudoscience of evolution, you begin to find that suddenly you have a justification for everything you've just come down to. Because here's a theory that's built on on improbability. I mean, uh, evolution is completely improbable. It just can't work. The the numbers don't work out. It's unproven, and it's ultimately unprovable, And we often call it the theory of evolution, but it's not really a theory because theory has to be a hypothesis that has been proven beyond any reasonable doubt. Well, evolution has not been proven beyond any reasonable doubt. It hasn't even been proven or demonstrated as a hypothesis. So that's to say that there's enough evidence to allow us to begin to seek out more evidence. And so what evolution should have been relegated to is an interesting idea, but it shouldn't have become the foundation and the structure for all of life. It's kind of the idea that if the universe is 4 billion, 10 billion, 15 billion years, when we sent the lunar lander to the moon, they put great big flat pods on it because they understood that over that much time, The moon would be covered with a layer of of dust that they needed something broad not a sharp tipped end of a a stand to land on because it would have just sunk in all that sand so they made pods so that they could land on this uh this dusty surface well it turns out when they got there that there was only about uh, four inches of dust they never have come up with a good explanation for that they just kind of never mind and move on um the problem is, though, what it happens to be is really more of a religious faith and, not, re- and it's not scientific fact. And I'm not saying that the world of science doesn't have any factuality to it, but it makes big leaps from the micro to the macro that it cannot prove, and, uh, which has led to this becoming more a religion I would call scientism rather than just science. It was Dr. Alfred E. Wildersmith who uh, had uh, four earned doctor degrees in the natural sciences. And uh, <clears throat> interestingly, he was not an evolutionist. He said there's no such thing as scientific evolution because he says evolution says that everything is random, chaotic, and it, it developed without plan or purpose or design. He said you can't do science without a plan. I mean, there has to be something to study. And if there's no pattern to study, there there's no relationship then there is no such thing as science. And yet, so you have science, again, with its mutually contradictive name. It's called science, which means you look at the empirical data and see relationships between things, and yet you have evolution, which says there is no relationship between the things. It's just really you know becomes a lot of doublespeak, and if you say it fast enough and people don't ask you to define yourself, then you can get away with it. The biggest problem that evolution has is it has no ability to explain the mysteries of the universe. Oh, I know that they can say that, well, it just, you know, randomly happened because of energy and crystals and this thing and that way. But when we look at things like DNA, which is a coded system, which means it's a language. (laughs) <laughs> the DNA molecule is, is basically a logos, it's a language, and it, it codes what we become, and it works in a very regulated and orderly fashion. It doesn't mean that sometimes the machinery doesn't go off tilt, it does sometimes, and creates genetic uh, uh, disorders, which are often deadly. But the whole point is this, that it is a plan that follows in course, it is written out very, very clearly, it is what we would properly call a language. And we find things in, in nature like the instinct of animals or certain innate abilities. It's kind of amazing we have uh, bird feeders and, and uh, bird houses in our yard. My wife and I love to sit in the evening and watch the birds come and interact and watch the squirrels compete for the seeds and watch the cats compete for the squirrels and the birds. It's kind of interesting little uh, slice of nature. but just watching how that these birds that we have who will be who are just recently uh, uh, took to flight and left their home will come back and and they will make their nests in the same place and instinctively we know that those birds know what they need to do and how to feed their young and all of this I mean it's just it's really amazing when you think about the complexity now you might say well that's just the way it is well Have you ever raised a dog and tried to train that dog? Have you found that it naturally takes the behaviors that you want it to take? It has some certain inputted behavior, and you have to spend a lot of time and energy intelligently designing that dog to sit, fetch, and and go to bathroom outside and all the rest of it. Well, my point is this, that you are the intelligent being who's training that animal to act in a certain way. And yet we turn around and say the universe around us, which is, Innumerable now times, trillions upon trillions of trillions of times, more complex than training your puppy. Does it just on its own? It's just not a reasonable conclusion. In fact, even the people who believe it. Uh, Are often willing to admit that they know it's not reasonable. For example, uh, one of my favorite books, it's called What We Can't Not Know, was written by a a, a doctor of philosophy, professor of philosophy at the University of Texas. And um, he uh, is quoting from a Harvard population biologist, Richard Lewontin, uh, who wrote a a review in the New York Review of Books. And this is what he said with regards to uh, science and evolution. Uh, an interesting admission. He says, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. He said, we take the science side of science despite the apparent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific communicated for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have an a priori commitment, a commitment before we get the facts, a commitment to materialism. In other words, he's saying that we will only listen to a materialistic evolutionary explanation for things because that's what we've chosen to believe in even if it doesn't make sense, even if we can't prove it. He says, It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. It's an amazing admission from a man who claims he's a a follower of the facts when he says we willingly reject any fact that doesn't fit into our conclusions. You know, one of the things we hope is that if we ever are on trial and we have a jury hearing our case, that they won't think like this guy. I would not want Dr. Lewontin on my jury because he's a guy who's clearly stated that he can draw the conclusion of your innocence or guilt Without even knowing any of the facts. He just bases it upon his a priori assumptions. So if he doesn't like Christians who are six feet tall uh, and are 72 of years of age and and uh, have a strong biblical perspective, then I know that I'm going to be found guilty regardless of what the evidence shows. So this is the kind of thing that we have to understand that they admit to and they recognize, and yet they built their entire identity, their careers, their wealth, their power, and everything else upon a point of view, and they can't allow anything to erode it. It's more about holding on to their positions of power than is about anything else. Well, there's another a philosopher by the name of Thomas Nagel in his book, The Last Word, a humble title. He's going to give us the last word on everything. But he simply admits along with us, he's a strong atheist, a strong evolutionist. Those two things have to have each other. If you you can't be an atheistic uh, deist, you can't believe there's a God and be an atheist. You have to say there is no God and evolution, they always claim, proves that there is no God. But here he says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. Isn't it just that, it, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. And then he goes on to, let me turn the page here. He says, I want, I don't want the universe to be like that. He says, my guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it's responsible for much of scientism and reductionism of our time. One of the tendencies is to support is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about life, including everything about human, the human mind. Darwin enabled modern secular culture to heave a great sigh of relief by apparently providing a way to eliminate purpose, meaning, and design as fundamental features of the world. (laughs) Now, again, this is an amazing admission by a man who admits that he is an atheist and he is an evolutionist, but he also is honest enough to say it's kind of ludicrous the degree to which we rely upon this. Now, What I really want to take a target at is those of you who might be listening who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I believe in in evolution. Uh, Christian evolutionism has taken on a new term because that's a very negative term. So they have progressive creationism and essentially it's the same thing but with a different name they believe that god created and and they they say that's undeniable the evidence is all there they believe in the in the idea of a creator god that there had to be an intelligent design of the universe and so it's a halfway admission of that but at the same time uh, they believe that that divine mind created through evolution And, of course, they say this because look at the universe, the incredible complexity, uh, the variety, the diversity, the non-transferability of traits, really the fragility of the very universe that if the sun is any closer or any farther away, life on Earth would be impossible, I mean, we look at all these things and if we just look at them simply as in terms of what the probability is, it seems overly compelling uh, that we have to believe that somebody intelligent created this. Now, even Richard Dawkins, when pushed came to shove when he's the guy who wrote the book, The God Delusion. Uh, he admitted that there had to be uh, a, an intelligent design behind Earth and the world that we're in. And he concluded that it was possibly UFOs, which I mean, here again, we call them UFOs because they're unidentified flying objects. And I know that's become a hot thing on on uh, many even conservative television programs. But the simple fact is they still remain Uh, undiagnosed, unidentified. They're unidentified. Uh, I would suggest, based upon what I see in Ezekiel uh, chapters one through four, that it's very possibly it's demons or even angels that they're seeing, and they're uh, trying to attribute to them some kind of mechanical nature, because we live in a world that views everything from a mechanical point of view. Just saying. I'm just saying, (laughs) I have a, a relative who claims he was abducted and he was probed, and I've always been confused of why anybody with such superior intellect would be so interested in the anal cavity of human beings. I mean, it, it, I don't know what they're looking for. We we don't even do that much in the medical community anymore. So why are these advanced intelligence? Um, they're either uh, not as advanced as we think, or they got their real perfs and have some strange appetites. Anyway, I digress. But again, why is that point of view so unacceptable? Um, it's, it's basically pretty unscientific. It doesn't remove any of the problems that evolutionists face, that only uh, by all they're doing really is just putting God's face on a failed theory. And I think what really motivates it is more than a desire, more a desire for certification, respectability within the scientific community. I know I've talked to various people who are working on graduate degrees in the scientific fields, and they said if I admit to the doctoral community, committee that I believe in creationism or believe in, in the in a God a seven a, a young earth theory that God created the earth in seven days or six days, uh, I'll be immediately uh, let go. I mean, they they'll just toss out my my work and I'll not be able to move on academically, So I have to play the game. I pretend that I believe in evolution so that I can get my certification. It's a pretty amazing thing. It's gotten so bad that even in some doctoral committees, uh, scientific committees, they're actually asking these people very specifically uh, whether or not they believe in a, the biblical version of creation. Uh, and if they even give the slightest hint, they're out the door. But you see, there's some, also some real other problems involved with it. First of all, the, the theological problems, that if God created through evolution, what kind of a God do we serve? He can't be a good God. He says he's good in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, but how could he be good if he creates through death and chaos and catastrophe, which is what evolution says, that he creates through random acts of violence, leading arguably to what we might think are the fittest or maybe more accurately, the luckiest to survive. I mean, all of these things uh, really create some real uh, serious questions because the Bible that uh, the God of evolution, if there is a creative God in evolution, he's an amoral being. He he doesn't care. And that leads to a, not only a second question, who not only who is God and the question of whether or not he is good or not, who is man? Are we special or are we just another evolved animal? And here again, it's, it's like I, I sit there and scratch my head when I hear people pushing this because at what moment did man become man? I mean, because we have all these transitional phases, assumedly. And if we evolved, are we still evolving? Here's what's ironic. If you're from Northern Europe, do you know that at least 4% of your DNA is related to Neanderthals? And that right now, we look at Neanderthals as being really a group of very short, stubby people. But they were actually people. And when we see the pictures with the hair all over their body and they're dragging their knuckles on the ground, well, those aren't pictures of anything that has actually been seen or discovered. Those are enhanced by the artist. So most of the evolutionary pictures we see are really artist renderings of what they have been told we're supposed to be to fit the evolutionary theory, but they're not anything that's ever been discovered in any kind of archaeological dig. In fact, the, the whole fossil column that you know, where they date and place different beings at different times, only exists in the textbooks and in the charts that are they're drawn with them. They don't they don't exist that way in the real world. They don't find that uh, deep down they have little tiny horses, and up at the top you got great big horses, and they go up gradationally. I saw that model in the in that Museum of Natural History in Denver, Colorado, and I discovered that the only place in the world where that fossil progression exists is in the Denver Museum of Natural History. It doesn't exist any place else. They created it, not based upon fact, but upon a propaganda effort to convince young children to believe in a theory that young children by nature have difficulty believing in, because it doesn't make sense. We might ask that question, are we evolved or are we still evolving? <laughs> I mean, it's like, uh, and, and and this is where you get down to it, so that if evolution is how God created, did he turn off the switch at some point? And where's the indication of that? And Or are we at our best? Or can we evolve someday to become actually better than Jesus? Hmm. Then I have to ask the philosophical questions. Why is it that we crave meaning? And don't tell me you don't. You do. We crave meaning. We crave purpose. We crave order. And the question might be, is why do we even care if we live in a world of random chaos that just happens? There's no plan or reason or purpose. Why is it that we care about things like order? What makes man different? Why do we find that animals have certain patterns of the way they live their life and they do not like to see that pattern changed? Why do we have laws? Why do we have morals? Why do we have ethics? I know the argument is often, well, that we figured out that that's how we can survive best by getting along with each other. Really? Is that what's happening in Ukraine and Russia right now? We're getting along with each other. Uh, we have laws and morals and ethics uh, because we serve a God who has laws and who has morals and who demands that we live ethically. And that's why all these things matter. You see, there's a third thing that I think you have if you're a biblical creationist or a biblical evolutionist or a, a, a progressive ev- a creationist you have the moral problem. And that is that what is the basis of what is true? And not true. What is right and what is wrong? What is good or evil? Uh, if it's survival of the fittest or the luckiest, then what does that have to do with good and evil or right and wrong? And who are we to say that somebody's doing something bad? What about man's basic inhumanity to man? Why do we think that's bad? Why do we complain about it? Is it just a matter of bad genes? or a bad day or, or bad karma. Well, karma would make it religious, wouldn't it? But the whole idea is that we have this whole moral uh, dilemma or dynamic that exists in the church and has given us the scriptures. And if, if there is no, no uh, uh, if God created through evolution, then none of that makes any sense. Fourthly, you have the biblical problem. I mean, you 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 have to take the first twelve chapters of the Bible and you have to throw them out. And there have been efforts, endless efforts, especially since the turn of the uh, first century or the twentieth century. Uh, There's been endless efforts to try to create a compatibility between the days of creation and evolutionary theory. And the bottom line is that they they just don't work. I mean, it doesn't. You can't make the, the concept, the age, date, ages of evolution, fit into the six chap, uh, the six stages of creation. So um, it just does. It falls apart. It's it's intellectually dishonest, and you're basically creating a myth to prove that something else is a myth. Now, if God is by God, uh, the, uh, as we would define God, an all powerful being, could He not create any way He wanted? I mean, if, you, if God is all-powerful being, if you believe that there is a God and he's an all-powerful being, he, he can do whatever he wants, why couldn't he create just the way Genesis says he created? There's nothing in the story of creation that is beyond reality or beyond explainability or plausibility, unless, of course, you say that, well, God can't do that. But then again, aren't you contradicting yourself? You're saying God can't do it. Then now you're saying that God is limited and God is not an almighty being and all powerful. See, God could create in seven days. He could create in seven seconds. He could create in seven milliseconds. He could create without time at all and then create time after the fact. That even time, the Bible tells us, is the creation of God along with matter and space. So the point is that you really have to reduce your view of God in order to be to believe in evolution. And I would say that if we can't rely upon the first two chapters of the Bible, and, and ostensibly the first 12 chapters of the Bible, what do you do with the rest of the Bible? And where's the line that you draw? And it's not surprising that the dominoes just start falling so that you end up finding that most people who say they're Christians don't really believe the Bible is a reliable text. And so when they see something in the text that they don't agree with or makes them uncomfortable. They just simply said, well, that must have been for them and then and not for now. As if God changes his personality, he changes his value systems like we do. Uh, do we then totally disregard the Old Testament? Because here's a problem. Jesus and Paul quoted from the Old Testament over and over again. They even quote Adam and Eve and creation as being basis for th- certain theological doctrines that the church follows. So here again, you 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 run into all sorts of problems. You're gonna eventually just throw away your Christianity because you either have to accept what the Bible says or you have to just throw the whole thing out wholesale. So if man existed from millions of years back without biblical or even divine revelation, what in the world is faith anyway? Why is it even necessary? Did all these part man, part animal creatures, did they go to heaven? Did they go to hell? Do they go to hollywood or run a hedge fund in new york city where are they did they just simply read from dust they've come and dust they've returned and they've been annihilated you see because when you add to that you've got additional problems i've talked about how you you end up with having a a science problem you have a theology problem you have a moral problem you have a biblical problem but you also have a chronological problem how old is the earth well current beliefs today are based on the mathematical extrapolations that begin with certain assumptions. In other words, the idea is that everything is the same as it's always been, there's no change. And so if we measure the isotope levels in certain radioactive rocks and we see how they deteriorate at at what what pace they have a half-life, and we assume that everything has been the same since the very first day, which is kind of a plausless assumption given everything else people believe about evolution, but nonetheless. If we give that, then how do we know that the way that we're measuring time is even accurate? When we know the the speed of light has slowed dramatically over the last few thousand years. The speed of light is slowing down. What means, therefore, is we measure how old things are by the speed of light. If things were moving faster in the past, um, how do we explain how we measure time into the future? I mean, all of these become serious problems. And what what science has done is simply just kick the can down the road. We simply say that time, uh, it, we just add a, a few billion years to the earth every time we find out something about the universe that we didn't know. We see farther into the universe and we say, oh, it's got to be older then. So we add time to it, even though we don't know at what pace the universe was expanding. <laughs> so, And we don't know if it was created expanding in the very beginning, I mean, and the very fact that it's expanding out and not collapsing in is a whole issue and a whole argument discussion all into itself. So it's like the high school students, a, a, a Christian teacher in a Christian school is teaching a science class. And he asked the students a very simple question. He said, if your car broke down and you lifted the hood and you took the largest wrench that you could find and you backed away and you threw it at the engine as hard as you could, would that repair the engine? And all the students said, of course not. He said, what if you threw that wrench at the engine a thousand times? Would it fi- fix the engine? And the students said, well, of course not. He said, but what if you threw that wrench, at that engine four 4 billion times. When well, they said, oh, in that case, yeah, it would probably fix the engine. And the point is that they had been conditioned to think if you add enough time, suddenly something would change. But we understand this, that nothing has changed between the engine, between the wrench and the man or person throwing the wrench and it colliding with the engine. Nothing has changed And we know that that kind of impact will not build up. It will always tear down. And when we look at the universe, we don't see the universe going up. We see it going down, suffering from what we call entropy. The second law of thermodynamics is going from a state of order to disorder. We see this downward decline. And the bottom line is, so how do we get the idea that somehow in every way, every day, it's getting better and better? But what really is the biggest problem for the evolutionists is the fact that they can't explain the original cause. I mean, they, they like to talk about the Big Bang theory, but they don't really have an explanation of where did the combustibles come from, who made the combustibles, and who lit the fuse that made the Big Bang. You see, they, they don't even want to talk about that. They just want to talk about the effect. They never really want to focus on the cause <clears throat> because a real weak link in the whole evolution argument is the original cause. And they just simply like to argue, well, we can't know what the original cause is. Well, maybe that's true to a point, except God says that he's revealed himself. In Psalm 19, God said one of the first places he revealed himself is in the universe that he created, that we can look at it and realize someone else other than myself created all of this. And we understand that we can navigate through this world and life because there's an order and there's a symmetry and there's a pattern and there's a plan. And that bespeaks of intelligent design, and intelligent design means there's an intelligence behind the design, and so forth and so on. And what we find is throughout history, God has spoken into our world through prophets and through his word, and through his natural universe, and brought us to a point where we can believe that he exists. So, There are practical problems, though, how this affects you and me as Christians, which way we believe. The the real question is, how do we live our life? If we believe that evolution is true, then there is no pattern that we need to follow. We, We can't know what manner of men we ought to be. What do I use as a guide for my life? Or we might even ask, why does it even matter? See, in the end, we end up like Nietzsche, who himself grew up as a pastor's son, and he ultimately became a total nihilist because the moment he rejected the existence of God, or really, the, the, he said, basically, we have killed God, he, what he meant was that we've become so smart, we, do, we can't believe in him anymore. <laughs> he spent the last 20 years of his life in an insane asylum, so i give you enough information about him to know what he was, a man who was totally indulgent, nihilistic and self-serving and basically a total narcissist who lived for himself, as did Karl Marx and many others. But basically, what nihilism is, is the belief in the meaninglessness of life. Uh, what does it matter if the earth is destroyed, if millions starve to death, if poverty rules? Uh, if, what does it even matter if I'm ruling? Basically, it's reading the book of Ecclesiastes and skipping the last chapter. Chapter 12, Solomon comes to this interesting conclusion. He decided that the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. But you see, before that, you begin to say, Yeah, what is the meaning of life? And Solomon says it over and over again meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But why should I listen to even Solomon? He's just guessing like I am if there is no God. You see, there's a real danger and impact if the Bible begins to lose its authority first in our own lives, and then it begins to lose authority in culture. And the way that we allow the Bible to begin to have an authority in culture is to begin by letting it have authority over our lives. And as it has more authority in our lives, people begin to see how the authority that we follow works. If God created, as Genesis 1 and 2 says, and I believe it does, then I think there are seven things that we can know about God. First of all, that God is the creator and that he's not just a creator, but he's a good creator and explains why why we like the world we live in that's why we understand beauty and why we understand uh that some things taste good and other things don't we understand why there are uh, pleasantries in this world why a rainbow is is such a beautiful display of god's creative power the secondly what it tells us that mankind is not just an evolved animal we're a special, loved, image-bearer of God. We're, that is, means we are designed to reflect God. That God has put certain dynamics in the human characteristic that we reflect his personhood in this world. That we're called to reign over the planet. He's given us dominion over it. That we're not just another cog in nature's impersonal, amoral wheel grinding through time. But we are called by God to reign in some specific and unique way given to each one of us individually. The thirdly, when we talk about morals, there are absolutes. Some things are always true and some things are always false. Some things are always good and some things are always evil. Some things are right and some things are wrong. It's amazing because if people who basically argue the most that there are no absolutes are the first one to scream that somebody's being unfair you know, the, the same people who say that um, there is no such thing as gender, and, and because they're a biologist, they can't tell us whether someone is a woman or not, will turn around and celebrate the fact that the first woman Supreme Court justice of color it has been appointed to the court. Well, how do we know she is a woman of color? How do we know she's a woman at all? We can't judge that according to these people. And so basically they can't live within their own ideology because in reality, their ideology isn't desired to be something they live in. It's something they desire to use to control and gain power. What it also tells us is that there, um, there, are, uh, there is a thing called evil. And evil is simply the absence of God. Wherever God isn't or is pushed out, then what follows always is evil. So you want to understand what's happening in a culture that pushes God out of its daily life? out of its business life, out of its government life, even to some degree, even out of our churches, what we find is that absence of God gives room for a profound expression of evil. Which brings me to number five, there is sin in the world. That sin is basically a personal rebellion against God. It's really self-deification. It's expunging God from my self-life and making myself the center of my universe. I say we enthrone the evil trinity of me, myself, and I. That history is basically uh, a a fact and therefore the past matters. And number seven, the future. The future is progressing towards a terminus that the Bible calls eternity. In fact, I wanna just close by reading what the Apostle John wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit of God in Revelation 21.1. He said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea, And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death and neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the so- throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So, when we talk about our God, the Creator, we have to realize that first and foremost, that he, as a Creator, he, it tells us that He is good, that we are special, uh, that there is right and wrong and truth. And there ultimately will come justice that even though there's evil in the world and even though there's sin in the world, that our study of the history of the world, which the Bible records, matters. It helps us to interpret the trajectory of the future. And what the Bible tells us, the future that we're going to be coming into is first going to get really bad and then Christ is going to come and it's going to be forever good. He'll make all things new and he'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain because he'll make everything new. So I hope you found this helpful. Uh, God bless you and uh, look forward to the next time we can have one of these kind of conversations. In Jesus' name, amen.